A man's, a man's like a unicorn in that room. Magical dust. Walk around, people want to come speak to me because man's got that, that, that flavour, innit? Yeah, I yeah, spice yeah. up that thing. Welcome to Surviving Society. This season's broad theme is how we continue to deal with the legacies of empire. Hello everyone, welcome to the last episode of this season. Last one. And we are really excited to be joined by Amber Lascelles, who is a black feminist PhD researcher working on black feminism and literary writings. Is that correct? Yes. Have I said that correct. right? Do you say literary writing? Um, it sounds you can a bit say funny. fiction or literature. Fiction and literature. Or yeah, that's literary better. analysis. Literary analysis. And we're going to be talking all things black feminism today and the themes that have come out of your PhD research. Initially, when we first started chatting about doing an episode together, Amber, I thought, right, we're going to make this black feminism. It's going to be an alternative to Women's Hour. Let's do this. Then you made a really important point about having Tiso on the episode and having conversations about black feminist praxis being important to have black men included in that conversation at times and how we can sort of learn together and learn about how to live and have futures together and how that can be a conversation amongst black men and women. So, yeah, so, T, you're here with us. I think it's an important conversation, right? So I am part of patriarchy. There is no ifs, buts, right? I am. I benefit from that, right? But... It's a partial benefit, though, because you're black. Because uh, I'm black. But, you know, <laughs> but, 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 no, but that's an important distinction. It's a very important distinction. But however, however, however within our own subset still... We've run our own subsets on our own dialogues with each other, internal dialogues. There's still that power differential, right? So you see that in things like when you go to the, the churches, we see black men using their power and status to abuse young black women. Mm. So they're still within that community. So there is a power differential there. So I think it's an important conversation, but I think what's important is to help us understand that we, you have to help us on that journey because... We lack that understanding, right? It's only through that dialogue that we have that conversation so we understand where we're going wrong. We help you and you also have to help yourself as well. Yeah, no, we're going to help ourselves. <laughs> but, <laughs> but right now, but like I said, I can't speak for everyone, right? But I'm speaking for myself. Yeah. So I'm ready for that conversation. I'm ready, but I need that help because I don't really understand. So I only know from the people, the women that have been in my life that I respect and I look up to, so my mum, my granddad, and try to understand... Where that's going. So you, you, you kind of have an understanding and you try to implement. But in all your life, in all my life, I'm having people telling me the opposite of how to be to women. Mm. And, and people, even, even women themselves, telling me to be the opposite and congratulating me on it. And you're thinking, well, what am I doing? Especially when you're a young teenager, it's confusing for guys. So mm. to have this dialogue, it's a powerful thing. Mm. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. And I think rather than necessarily looking to the women or the black women around you mm. to almost educate you, mm. I think it's important to take ownership of that and do some of that education yourself, definitely. Mm. Yeah, listen, I read loads of books, right? Yeah. You read loads of books and those books can give you some kind of instruction, a, a path to... But when you're looking at daily interactions, right, daily interactions on a practical basis, this is where we need to, because I think, like I said, you can read lots of books, but it's an abstraction almost. And, and then you can forget those things when you're with your, when you're with your pals. Your behaviour changes. You conform to social structures, right? Or so, not. Amber might be out to tell us how fiction is going to help us well, listen. within the day-to-day. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, sorry. So, so, Amber, your thesis title, Black Feminism in a Neoliberal World, Resistance in Contemporary Black Women's Writing. 
That's powerful stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so about? I'm looking at five authors. Right. So, um, and you can say if you know them or don't know them, but Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, mm-hmm. Dion Brand, mm-hmm. Edwige Danticat, Tai Selassie, and Zitsi Dangaremba, mm-hmm. who I don't know if you know, she wrote Nervous Conditions, which was like the first novel to be published by a black Zimbabwean woman. And even though it was published in, I think, 1988, which you kind of think, that's, that's late. <laughs> that's really re- like yeah. recent. Mm-hmm. So for our listeners, if we just assume that our listeners don't know who these authors are and mm. the, the direction of these authors, could you just give a summary of some of them and how they've informed what you've been doing in your PhD? Okay, great. So I've been interested in black feminist theory and black women's fiction for like for years and years now, like since I did my master's degree. And the project really grew out of doing that master's degree, reading um Chimamanda Adichie's Americana and being yeah, and being quite interested in black feminism as a radical political stance and then also the kind of black feminism which you might see in popular culture, um, in some in someone like Beyonce and like the kind of black feminism that she does. And then I was kind of thinking about, well, what's going on here? Uh, because for me, and, and if you look at the writings of Angela Davis, Bell Hooks, Patricia Hill Collins, all of like the foundational black feminist theorists, they're really talking about an anti-capitalist kind of black feminine feminism, which is like, we're not going to engage in capitalism, we're going to, because that is the root of the oppression of people, and especially black people, so, so we're going to look at dismantling capitalism, right? So then, if you kind of have that Beyonce kind of black feminism, which is very much... Um, yeah, consumer, consumerism, a consumer, yeah, capitalism, yeah, yeah. Um, which is which is very much that. Then, how can you have a radical message and at the same time be saying that mm. black feminism is about women's empowerment? So buy this T-shirt and do this dance and do. This. So, so I was interested in that mm. difference, um, and that kind of led me to looking at fiction as a way to almost return us to thinking about radical black feminism, anti-capitalist black feminism. So in fiction, you can create worlds that are not quite our real world. And that's what then led me to looking at writers like Dion Brand, Edwidge Danticat. So Dion Brand is um, a Trinidadian Canadian writer. She's really amazing. Um, I don't know if you would have read anything like her, A Map to the Door of No Return, where she kind of talks about the black diaspora um, as it being like a door what I'm quite interested in is see the idea of returning to the page for to kind of combat images of representation. So it kind of ties back into what I was reading about bell hooks and in racist representation. The idea of cons- that consuming that image is so powerful. So how do what how how do you compete with the kind of images that are out there to return to to get back to that kind of radical notion of looking at race and looking at the system and trying to tear down that system? when these images are so pervasive that it, it, it triggers the kind of racism that we've internalised. Before this episode, we were talking about a series that we were watching, and mm-hmm. I recently just started watching an amazing series called Pose, mm-hmm. which is about um, the queer black community mm-hmm. in New York in the 80s, mm-hmm. and it's based on a documentary, Paris is Burning. Yes. And Belle Hooks has this essay about Paris is Burning, where she has this weird thing where she talks about how black gay men are trying to be women because they're like doing caricatures of women, and it's, like, it's a complete misunderstanding of trans identity. Tra- it's um, transphobic yeah yeah yeah, it's transphobic really it's oh it's so hard like so someone like bell hooks for me 
in terms of thinking about love and community <clears throat> and also just very basic like teaching white students about race and their position in society it's just been so influential for me but like as time has gone has gone on like you do read and you do hear about some things that are a bit like mm, is that a bit misplaced i need to read that essay i haven't read that but that's really so what, what is it based on is it based on the paris the 1968 so, uprising so res- no so it's a response to the uh, documentary Paris okay. Burn, okay. which okay. is about the black gay community. Okay, York, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Or the trans um, yeah. community. Yeah, But I, I suppose, like, again, they are heroes in one respect, but they're human, right? Yeah. And so they can't yeah. really cover all aspects of. So sometimes they say stuff that that's off and wrong. But I think then, I but then at the same time, and I think what what you sent us as well, Amber, in terms of your sum, um, thesis summary. Like, if my black feminism isn't trans-inclusive, then it's not my black feminism because it's not being inclusive of all women. So it's like, yeah, you do take people with their faults, but... It's like, I guess it's just important to always have that critical eye, but that critical eye can be quite exhausting for us, can't it, as well? And that kind of brings me back to... um, So Dionne Brand, who is a Trinidadian Canadian writer, she's also um, a lesbian, and... Some of her characters, all of her characters are black, mostly black women, but some of her characters are queer and um, and she writes about their relationships with one another. So, yeah, so I think that it's important um, and bringing it back to what I'm trying to do in my thesis is that I think it's important that we don't just have a monolithic idea of what black feminism is. Of course. We can read Chimamanda Adichie, but we can also read Dion Brand. And these two writers are giving us two very different kinds of characters who represent very different kinds of black feminism. But ultimately, we we kind of have to go back to a feminism that is radical, that wants to create change, that wants to dismantle capitalism. Quite interesting that you kind of speak of, like, some, to challenge the idea of a, a monolith, right? And that's so modern, right? We always seek to lump things together. So we, even though we know there's spaces, that most things are a spectrum, right? But we always automatically go to, like, this is feminism, this is black feminism, and there's a spokesperson for that one particular movement mm. when we know it's not that. And we miss out all the kind of nuances and all the different, kind of different groups of people that it encompasses. And, um, yeah... I feel like it's part of, like, neoliberalism and capitalism, but, like, I always have, particularly whether it's in academia or in writing, when I read something or, or find a theory or a scholar that I'm just so inspired by, like, it's really hard for me to fight, not to put them on, like, a pedestal in my head. And I think it was... It might have been, yeah, been Janine Francois. I think she tweeted the other day something like... I'm really lucky because I don't give myself heroes and, and sheroes and that really helps in terms of keeping my critical eye and, and not necessarily putting all your emotions into aspiring to be like someone, aspiring to write some like someone because like everyone, lots of people have their faults. And I feel like I often have to fight that a little bit more when it comes to black feminism or scholars of colour that I really look up to and like, I find their writing liberating for my sense of self but also for my sense of academic endeavour like it's so hard not to do that when we have so little representation anyway um it's a mad minefield listen i i, I felt that like today when, when you like when bill hooks talking about love right so that's a that's almost an odd word to talk about in a political context right to love yourself to love blackness and you think it as a political stance and even when i'm even as i'm saying it it feels uncomfortable yeah because it as as i've been social i've been socialized to think like i don't even talk about those things 
I will never, I'd never even say those words, love. And so when you use it as a political context, you're thinking, wow, that's like, it's blowing my mind. In terms of themes that have come out of your thesis and um, things that you want to sort of communicate um, around the direction of your, of what you found through the fiction and the literatures that you've mentioned, what would you say are sort of some of the key ideas that you have had? Okay, so this is a really big question. I was thinking on my way here that I need to try and find a way to, to be succinct about this. Don't worry, me and Tia aren't ever succinct, really. Like, okay. we just sort of just say what we Never. think. And then yeah. it's sort of, yeah, so just, it doesn't have to be like three set things, but like, what are some of the things that you've been thinking about? Okay, so um, one of my chapters, which is about Trimanda Adichie, um, which kind of ties into what we've been talking about so far, is that I'm really interested in that chapter in class and neoliberalism and how um, when you become advantaged by certain structures such as if you are middle class um, like the main character of Chimamanda Adichie's Americana um, she's a she's a middle class Nigerian woman who migrates to the US uh, finishes a college degree kind of benefits from a lot of these structures she gets a boyfriend who is a white guy who's quite privileged he then allows her to get a job at this magazine and then she eventually goes back to Nigeria and she lives like quite a comfortable upper middle class lifestyle back in Nigeria because of all of these middle class structures that she's benefited from. But so when I first came to thinking about class and blackness I really struggled to get past the idea that the Marxist idea that the middle class are always complicit in capitalism, the middle class are always complicit in everything have to have this very bottom-up perspective on things when you're thinking about overturning the structures of capitalism. So that was a question that, that really came to the forefront. Where do the black middle class fit into black feminism? Um, and it's still a question that I'm sort of grappling with. That's, that's really powerful, isn't it? Because yeah. we're surrounded by a lot of black... I mean, we're effectively black middle class mm. as a, in accordance with our academic statuses. Like, it's... I don't know, so if you follow a Marxian analysis, so Marx would consider part of that middle class that know, right? So he would see himself as, if you're the middle class person that knows about the struggle of the proletariat, you, your job is to lead them. So Marx's job is to lead. So by kind of way of implication, like, so you'd say black middle class, their job is to provide that leadership to the proletariat. So Cedric Robinson argues that it's the job of the middle class to use their economic, academic power to uplift the proletariat class. It's mm-hmm. almost like give up some of their privilege in order to help this, the struggle of the proletariat. Mm-hmm. It's something that can be co-opted if you think of it as like a leadership kind of power mm-hmm. in terms of the middle class leading, being the leaders. Mm-hmm. But do the, ma- do the black middle class, like, it must be quite... Think about black middle classes doing that or adopting what Cedric Robinson wanted them to do. Like, the allure of whiteness and white supremacy and capitalism, it, you can almost see how easy it is to forget doing, forget about doing that and just embed yourself within yeah. that comfortable class structure. And um, we've got... There's historical instances where, we, where that's actually happened, right? Mm. So in the Haitian Revolution, the, you had the kind of black middle classes who were established... They, they abandon their slave compatriots, right? It's difficult, once you have that power, to give, it, to give that up. 
because you have re- you kind of reap those benefits from it. You have that you have a nice position, mm. and you're actually dealing with in in the case of the Haitian Revolution, you're dealing with the white people who have overall power, and they're willing to give up some of that for you. It's not saying it's impossible because nothing's impossible, but it's a difficult thing to do. Mm. But I think it's important that it's <laughs> always something that we're all struggling and striving towards doing, thinking about the ways in which we're privileged and the power that we have and how we can use that, not just for our own gain, but for the community, the society. Mm-hmm. So. For me, that, that is the kind of promise of, of a kind of a Marxist theory. Like the, there's a group of people that can, if wanting to, they can make things happen. I'd like to be we're kind of working towards that. Like people that people in the know, like so we have a platform and I open that platform to everyone else to help people. Whoever I, can, whoever I can. So I think we are getting there. And I think you see that a lot in, I suppose, in Hollywood, like Puff Daddy and all those kind of groups. They do things to help the community, I think. Do they? I mean, yeah. I mean, I we're getting Kendrick into... Lamar might be a better example. Sorry? Kendrick Lamar might be a better I, you example. You know what? I, the, the, and it's real estate, doesn't he? Listen, the last time I looked at hip hop yeah. was 1994, so I'm a bit out of date, Tiso right? Tiso just okay. said Puff Daddy. <laughs> in 2020. He's had about four names since then, and I'm not even exaggerating. Listen, I told you, like, listen, 1994 is my year, man, and I'm out. I'm gone. But then we also have to be careful, I think, about who we're looking to when we say, okay, these are the people with economic power, these are people with class power, academic power, and these are also the people who are going to help the people without that power to overturn the system. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what Puff Daddy is doing these days. But... Well, um... Oh, I mean, he has his, like, billionaire's brunch, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, the idea of critiquing black billionaires apparently means that we're jealous rather than meaning actually we don't think there should be billionaires we Mm. think there should be a a strong redistribution of wealth that's a whole other conversation I think so yes a class a big one yeah and then just a side note yeah fiction I think talks about class better than any academic theory I feel like it, it does that every day it synthesises how it seeps into our life it writes it so beautifully rather than like this is what social class is well yeah I, I think that fiction has a way of just opening up the world to us yeah um, in, a, in a way that if we're looking at sociology or other academic disciplines can tend to kind of flatten things out into this is this theory, this is what this person says, this is other theories, what this person says. Whereas fiction, I think, can reveal to us a truth that sometimes we can find it difficult to face. Mm. But in the revealing of that truth, in the looking at our world through a creative lens, it allows us to think, ah, actually, (laughs) that is how things are. I've never really articulated it myself that way. So class is really important to part of my work. So I also became interested in, through class, through this idea of, or the theory, or the ideology of Afropolitanism. I don't know if you know much about what Afropolitanism is. Okay, so I think it's really interesting. So Afropolitanism, um, it's similar to cosmopolitanism, but it's a word that is used to refer to Africans and people of the African diaspora. And it's almost synonymous with mobility. So people that move around to different countries, whether that's for jobs or for education, or it can also refer to... It's like, um, is it like a cultural, social and economic 
capital of the African diaspora as well. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, it's also can almost be an aesthetic thing too. Mm. So um, you might think of like Afropunk. You might think you might look at people that are Afropunk and the way that they dress, and they might have bright pink dreadlocks and mm. piercings and. They, you might call them Afropolitans. But there is a certain class privilege that comes with it. So it is very much predicated on mobility. So you might be educated here, but you live here, but then you move to there for a job or another, another mm-hmm. opportunity. But what is interesting about it as a theory, and in my work I use uh, a Chile Mbembe's ideas on Afropolitanism and another uh, scholar called Simon Kikandi, and um, what is interesting about it is that what they say is that it's another way of being African in the world. I think are the words that he uses. And uh, it's a way of it's a way of trying to understand how we how um, African Africa has an influence on the rest of the world, and it's putting Africa at the centre rather than always having Europe at the centre. Um, so it's interesting in my in my work because I'm thinking about Afropolitanism and class alongside black feminism, and instead of saying that oh, if we have Afropolitans, they're part of the middle class and they're complicit, so they can never really be true, truly revolutionary feminists, or however you might want to put it. Um, actually, the way that I look at Americana, for example, and another novel that I look at. Um, which is by Thais Selassie, and it's called Ghana Must Go, is that actually if we look at Afropolitanism as related to the diaspora and dealing with the way that when you're part of the diaspora, you almost feel fractured in some ways and broken off from the home country or you feel like you're living in a place that you're not fully a part of or that doesn't feel like home to you. So I thought that that was really interesting and how can we use Afropolitanism and feminism as a way to try and expand our ideas on what it means to be part of the diaspora. I think, because I, I, I kind of struggle with that sometimes, how do I make the diaspora more inclusive, right? Because there's black people in Japan, and, there's, and we seem to forget about it. There's black people living in Russia and, and, and the struggles that they go through. How do we have that inclusive... Again, I don't want to kind of slip into kind of the uh, kind of language of modernity because there's a tendency to have a catch-all theory that kind of encompasses all of us. I think stuff, stuff like what you just met there, Afropolitanism, that kind of would help us on that way to cre- kind of create those solidarities with that diaspora where, where, wherever we are, you know? Because, like I said, sometimes people don't forget that there's black people in Japan mm. going through craziness, right? So we need to be able to kind of establish a kind of a narrative that allows all of us to kind of voice that kind of disjuncture that we feel from the place where we're all from. I feel like as well, and I'm, you might be able to talk to this better than me, Amber, so I'm just talking um, anecdotally now, but Adichie has had quite a lot of criticism, is that right, in terms of how she positions, yeah, Afropolitanism and class and upper-middle-classness amongst black Africans within the diaspora and how... It isn't. I can see how those crit, those critiques of um, her literature are embedded in the fact that it's not necessarily 
revolutionary some of the things that she's talking about and it's not very anti-capitalist it's it's very much pro black faces in high spaces or black faces within the creative classes or within the economically secure classes like there's not a sort of prison abolition notion mm. within her literature does that make but I, I don't want to ha- I don't want to sort of have a go at that literature at all but I can so see how people like Angela Davis for example would be a bit like mm, how we yeah. how how is this helping us towards liberation freedom I think it's really interesting but at the same time Afropolitanism it it I love seeing it like, I love seeing it it makes me feel it makes me feel at home it makes me feel a sense of belonging like and that that feeling I feel like so many black people in the diaspora even if we're just talking about black people in fucking New Cross like having imagine having that like shared collective collective identity and um that crosses um social cultural and economic boundaries that is just that is built on the fact that we are from the diaspora like it is this there must be something very that could be very powerful about that, particularly in a society and in a moment where we're very much disenfranchised and there's shit going down. Like, where can we find these little pockets of belonging? Perhaps it is in this sort of thing, even though it might not necessarily be in line with our class politics. I'm really glad that you brought that up, and I, th- I thought you worded that really well, actually, that um, we can use Afropolitanism as something that brings us to solidarity, yeah. as something that... Um, we might be racialized as black in lots of different countries, but we almost have this shared feeling of Afropolitanism. It doesn't matter that we're not from here, but we live here, and we're also part of this wider, more globalized mm-hmm. sense of identity, I would mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm glad that you brought up Adichie and Adichie's critics. I'm mm-hmm. definitely one of her critics. <laughs> Um, I was yeah. like, I was like, what's so this said, one of her critics or not? Like, yeah. So she said in an interview last year, I'm not an anti-capitalist. I just think that capitalism should be more humane. And uh, it's just yeah. collective eye roll. Yeah. Um, she is very much... Yeah, she makes... I think she makes no illusions about the fact that she is a black feminist and she, she talks about black feminism, but at the same time, she she collects her cash. Like She'll be on the front row of the intellectual <laughs> yeah, yeah. catwalk and yeah. they'll be... have models walking down that catwalk with t-shirts on that say we should all be feminists which mm. is taken from her TED talk so she makes that clear but I'm definitely one of her critics and also what I t- try to do in my work is that I'll I'll separate the figure of the author so the kind of popular culture figure of the author from their literary work and of course there's a relationship between the two but what I was finding difficult is being able to talk about Adichie's fiction without talking about the persona and the the celebrity figure that she's now become. Um, but having said that, I do feel like uh, when I talk about Americana, the novel in my work, she has the main character has so many similarities with Adichie her. herself. Yeah, like it's her, but, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. and. And um, I'm quite critical of the ending, so I feel like she brings up all of these issues about being black in America, being uh, a Nigerian migrant in America, and um, the way that race operates in that context. But then, and also kind of issues of of being a woman, mm. and being a woman migrant and having to mm. get 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 through, make it through. 
But then when the main character goes back to Nigeria, it's kind of all that disappears and it's all about the romantic relationship and she like rekindles this um, relationship with her ex-boyfriend and mm. it's all great. Yeah, utopian. Mm. And that, I guess, that's where it'd be good to get beyond, wouldn't it? Like, how we can have a complicated relationship with the homeland um, or the motherland. Do you know, what's the motherland, Britain? It depends who you're talking to. Depends who you're talking to. Like, having, like, a nuanced conversation yeah. about Nigeria, about America. But, like, it's very binarised, isn't it? But, is it, but yeah. do you find that in fiction anyway, though? Is it quite difficult to make things, I don't know... No, yeah. I find that fiction is really good with dealing with that kind no, of nuance, right. it actually. Is, it is, it is. Sorry, yeah, ignore me. Yeah, um, ignore so me. it actually brings me quite nicely onto uh, what my perspective on... Taiyi Selassie's novel, Ghana Must Go. Okay, that's just a shout-out to Ghana. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ghana Must Go is about a family. They are Nigerian, Ghanaian. They live in America. The father of the family is a surgeon. Long story short, he gets involved in a lawsuit because he is basically told that he shouldn't have operated on someone and this someone was from a rich, white American family. He loses his job. He kind of fl- flees back to Ghana, and then all of the family end up like in disparate places all across the world. Uh, somebody ends up in the UK, somebody ends up in New York, and the novel is really about how the, how they reunite when their father's when their father dies, and he dies. Um, so the funeral is in Ghana, and so they have this reuniting, and in Ghana, in Ghana, yeah. Okay. So the novel, it asks a lot of questions about um, how you can have a sense of identity when you don't feel like you belong to a particular country, to a particular place. And, yeah, so... So, and that's... It kind of brings me back to this idea of transnationalism (laughs) and um, how transnationalism, not being particularly from any one nation, um, how that can be something that can be used within itself. Like it's okay to have a multiple identity and have like a multiple identification with different places. So, yeah. yeah. So would you say it's, it's similar to the, like, after World War II, the kind of notion of third-worldism, pan-Africanism, this idea that you can generate solidarities from different places and you recognise yeah. there's a there's solidarities between women... Uh, refugees and all these other groups because you have a similar oppressor and there's a system there. So this is, is I think there's a, a work, a body of work that speaks to this. But history always complicates things, right? Because people revert back to type, it seems. So in this current movement, people reverted back to nations and this seems to be the, the Western problem. It's one of the things they've exported out, outside the world and it's it seems to have stuck. But I feel like people even within the diaspora you're seeing that that's happening now. Like we're retreating. Mm-hmm. Like because places like for example in Britain are rejecting us time and time again. You were saying but, but I don't know recently. Go on. You say you passed a law. Oh Similar. God, but go on. Uh, yeah. Like so we are being rejected. So where did my dad come from? Where did my mum come from? I'm going back there. Where are my where are my grandparents from? I'm going back there. I'm having that reconnection with one of my multiple identities or one of my the nations that I'm that I belong to. Like it's really in like and I don't I don't I feel like that's 
I would personally would like to do that, but then it's almost like... Well, I'm glad that you mentioned Pan-Africanism, Tisa, because I feel like Pan-Africanism was very of its time in a way. Correct, it and was. if we're, we're in this world where everything's very globalised, everything's connected, and um, that's almost where I think things like Afropolitanism, um, there may be like other things, do some of the work that Pan-Africanism did, but in a more contemporary moment. I think, I think, I think one of the, well, I don't, I don't know, I'm not for sure, but this is just my thinking right now, because at that time, those kind of big movements were led from the top, and so it seemed to have that kind of, that kind of gravitas, that force behind it. So you have big people leading these things, and so when we're looking at these things, it's kind of from the middle. Like Marcus Garvey. Yeah. I was, I was going to say, I'm thinking of God. When you're talking, Amber, I'm thinking of Garvey. So you've got, you've got these big people, and it's led from the top. Where it's obviously those things fall out of political flavor, and when we learn about it, it's kind of like an epoch. It ends. It doesn't seem to get picked up by anyone. But obviously, that work's still being done, and it's still going because these things never stop. But because it's being done and it's it's not highlighted by anyone. It, it, this is, I think, well, this is the way your work comes in to kind of bring these moments out and say to people, this, this thing is still going on and it's a good thing it's that these evol- things... And it's evolving. And it's evolving. Yeah. Because, like I said, these things, they never stop. But because because how you because the narr- how the narrative is pushed over in schools and universities, it ends. You don't hear nothing about it unless you pursue it, right? Mm. And and this is what this is what we do as academics, right? You're looking at something specific and drawing something out to draw people's attention to this thing that is mm-hmm. worthwhile, right? It's making me think about reading um, Sadia Hartman's Wayward Lives and also reading Girl, Woman, Other, like thinking about the... Co- and also um, Hazel Carby's in, um, Imperial Intimacies as well, thinking about how, like, black feminism, fiction, academic scholarship, how that is really talking to that continuation or the evolution of, yeah, a type of pan-Africanism, but, like... It's making me... A couple of words are coming into my head when you're talking, Amber, as well, is generational stories, yeah, transnational identities, like, how we reclaim those and how I feel like we need them more than ever now. Like, I do... uh, Talking about, again, like, the kids around the corner in New Cross, like, to have those literatures, to have something which speaks to who we are, where we come from. Like, it's always been important, but now more than ever, it just feels even more so. What I hope would happen, this thing we push to the fore, but what you're, what we also have to kind of contend with is as the current moment is there's groups of young people that are going the opposite direction, regressing into kind of traditional forms of masculinity, homophobia, racism, that you wouldn't encounter because these guys are young, so they have no ex- direct experience of these things. In fact... Their parents have been sometimes benefit, beneficiaries of these kind of new social movements of the seventies and eighties, right? But these kids are holding views that are contrary to that, and and how this has happened, I'm not, I'm not too quite sure how it's happened. Are you talking about the um, South Asian and black people in the Tory government? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, we get we always bring it back. It's not even just not even just them, but I, I'm seeing it across the whole group of people and ideas about class, ideas about power that are almost 
Dickensian in how they how they look at the world. What's that to explain? So that? like a kind of nineteenth century notion of what how the world should. So I've just had some feedback. We're not being clear on. Um, sorry, sorry. Okay, and we're not being clear. No, you've done. You've explained it now. Go on. I'm, I'm, we're not being clear enough on um, concepts. Who books. said that? Give me a number. <laughs> <laughs> but we've got to be good on. Um, yeah, yeah. I get it. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's why it's so important that we read, right? Because when you read, you you look outside of yourself. You find the perspective of somebody's face because he's so happy you. that Amber just said that. I'm gonna cry. Amber, do you know what? Right? See how much I struggle with this, right? If I just say to people, some of my friends, just read a book, read read a book, and and the resistance to that, the resistance to reading the book. There's a, we have to contend with the idea there's a, 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 there's a stream of anti-intellectualism that runs through some of the black community, right? So when I was in school, I, ha- I had those, it was a problem. To be smart was, in fact, my nickname is with my friends, they call me Google as a joke. Because they're saying like, you want to you talk all the time about stuff, that they, don't, they don't read a book. To the point where it's, it's, it's troubling. And, the, and these guys, and these guys are now clearly in their 50s. And it's, it's, it's that that I've had problems with. So I, for a long time, for a long time at school, I would, not, I would never, ever, like I said, it's a class problem as well, because it links to class. I would never stand up and talk, and talk about stuff I like intellectually because it would seem as a weakness. So I, I would never say anything of any kind of, and I would never answer a question in the class because I don't want to be seen as the one who has the answer. And it's a madness, man. It's a madness because you see that. And, I, and when I've gone to schools now... And I've spoken to young kids, 13, 14 year old young boys. I see that in them. I see that they're willing to talk about nonsense. But when you ask them, and I know they know the answer, but they won't say it. I think that it's really important that we deal with that and we think about that and acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we have like the rise of book clubs, for example, like people of colour book clubs yeah, that are led, yeah. run by people of colour, that you have like lots of young people attending them. I know there's like, a lot in London, there's some in Leeds. We, yeah, so we can't, we can't look at it as a one-sided issue. We have to look at, OK, well, this is happening, but also alongside that, this is also happening. Mm. And what I think is so important and something that I hope to maybe do in the future is that we make sure that young people in the black community are educated about our history, things that are important to us. And now I would love to do something like bring a, have a book club in a school and so they have to read it then because I'll be sat there like, you need to tell me something about this book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but so looking more at the secondary school, even primary school kind of age, I think it's so important that we have representation and that we see ourselves reflected in the knowledge that we're being told that we need to learn. Otherwise, you just don't really have that connection to it. Definitely. I agree 100%. I think, it, like it starts earlier at primary school. And to tell those stories that I... If someone told me those stories earlier on, I wouldn't have discovered those stories at, at, at an age where I'm more susceptible, more susceptible to become radicalised, being angry. Now I'm finding these stories out and I'm angry. So I'm thinking, well, why didn't you tell me these stories? Have we told... Did the listeners know that you were... Tiso was part of the uh, Nation of Islam. Um, <laughs> well, listen, no, it wasn't... I have a book for you. Have you read Akala's uh, Natives? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he, he talks about this, right? About, but listen, but listen, also but... about how you can not necessarily 
yeah, how you might go through that phase of becoming rag- radicalised and angry, but you bring it back to, OK, well, what can I do about this? Some do. And mine's a bit older than the card, right? So I've seen them things there, right? So you go through them things. And some of my friends who, who didn't get past that, who couldn't get past that, and so they see the system as something that's fucked them. So they, they have they develop that kind of mentality where they say, fuck it. The conspiracy thing. Yeah, and, they, and, they, and then they separate themselves from the system. And they live outside the system. And when you live outside the system, it's hard, life's harder for them, right? So if, if only that someone had told them those stories earlier, Bell Hooks t- talks about the importance of images of representation. When I, for the first time, when I saw an image of a black person doing something that was like, out of what, what was at the time out of character for what I see a black person do, that's liberating. And I'm seeing, and I'm seeing different ways of being. And so it starts me thinking differently. But remember, everyone's different. And some people have got the means to accept that at that time. And some of my friends didn't have that means. And some of them are not here because of that. And so some people can get past it. But what I, it's, I suppose it's our job now that, now that we know is to kind of take those messages back into those places and those spaces. And like <laughs> kind of drawing it back is that's one of the things I come up against all the time. The idea of reading and not just reading, being critically aware and critically assessing what you're, read, what you're reading. Because some of the stuff they're reading is horrendous. Mm-hmm. Horrendous. So it's... It's that constant thing where it's trying to have that dialogue, but when you try to have that dialogue with a person who's not reading, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. I feel like as well, it's making me think about when you brought up the anti-intellectualism stuff, Mm. we find this a little bit, I feel like, with black women in the academy and black women writers, that we're asked to... Um, change the way we're talking or change the way how quote-unquote accessible we're being and I just feel like there's always a little bit of like a misogynoir going through so by misogynoir you you mean misogyny against black women yeah yeah like black women who have who are liberating themselves through um scholarship through feminist practice and talking about in a way that they want to and they're comfortable with with talking about yeah I see a lot of that online and even within some um, scholarship as well about how it's not accessible or how it's not. And I do think it has to be give and take. Like, there has to be ways for us to talk about how our lived experience relates to practice practice and theory. But at the same time, like, I do often feel like I see, and this is just me being my personal experience, black women being questioned in a way that I don't necessarily see other people um, being, yeah. Well, so when I was in Leeds, I ran... I was president of the Black Feminist Society. And something that we tried to do, which I think is really important, is we not only would talk about um, just like whatever we felt like talking about that day, so whatever had pissed us off that day, we would have a forum which was like a safe space where we could talk about stuff. But at the same time, we would encourage um, people to... Oh, okay, can you read this article by uh, Bow Hooks? Can you read this short essay or this short part of Patricia Hill Collins' mm. um, Black Sexual Politics, for, for example? And we'd use that to have a discussion, but it wasn't just an academic discussion, it was a discussion about everything. So I think that that's a way of... Mm. We don't necessarily have to always separate out, oh, yeah. okay, we have black feminist theory and we talk about intersectionality and all of these other concepts and ideas, and then we have the everyday life stuff. Mm. So that they very much feed into each other. And mm. I think it's important that we all try to do that in, in our work, as academics as well, that we yeah. don't just have it as theory, that we also are talking about our everyday lives at the same time. Oh, I think you're right. I think that, And I think that's what the kind of the point of the podcast, that's why we set the podcast up, to kind of make that bridge between 
real life and academia, right? Because academics talk in a kind of mad language mm-hmm. that academics understand. But if I said it to my mum, she'd just walk off. Right? So you, we want to have that kind of language where we're speaking to our people, right? And our work has resonates with them, hopefully, and they can get some some kind of insight, but also we can show that we're helping, giving something back, you know? Mm. So in the future, Amber, where would you... How you want to write and how you want to pursue scholarship, what does that look like for you, just brought, like thinking broadly now? That's a really big question. <laughs> because I just so. feel like it's such a powerful thing you're doing, like bringing fiction to everyday life, to talk about class, to talk about race, to talk about black feminism. Like, mm-hmm. obviously that's, there's been a lot of that in the past, but it's so, I, I think it's really powerful having someone like yourself sat in front of us in 2020 that really wants to do that work right now. And I think that's, it's, imp- it's, it's, a, it's radical and it's this, the sort of interventions that we need because it's different. But I think it's so important that we have more uh, black academic representation in the arts. And yes. I was saying <laughs> the arts and humanities, but yeah, the, <laughs> the arts I think is where it's really lacking. So, so I've been to like lo- loads of conferences and I've met a lot of people and I feel like I've got to the point where I can confidently say, say that I know three or maybe four other black women academics that are that do literature that are in this field I think especially when you consider that post-colonial studies in the UK uh, African and Caribbean literature in the UK is such a a big thing there are so many writers here Um, so you kind of get you don't really get that balance of us talking about our own narratives and our own stories and our own work. Yeah, just a side um, note there, guys. If you're going to talk shit about any black people to black people, just know we all know each other, particularly in academia. <laughs> That's just a side note there for any of you people. <laughs> Why am I that? It's true, literally. I was with someone this morning, a black guy, and I was like, oh, well, Amber's coming. He was like, oh, I know Amber. Amber's, Amber's like, who is this person? Yeah, she, she, <laughs> who is this person? Okay. Black academics, we might yeah. have one degree separation, yeah, yeah. not no separation. Yeah. yeah, And that's why you should always make sure your politics are right. It's not exactly. enough to just be a person of colour. You have to make sure that your politics are there. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so back to your, your question about where I want to take my work. So I think it's so important to have more black representation in the arts. So um, academia is really where I want to take my work, but not academia solely um i also want to use academia to academia funding i should say to do projects in the community to to do things like setting up and book clubs that might be in schools that will be exclusively about uh, african fiction caribbean fiction um fiction of the south asian diaspora Mm -hmm. um etc etc you could go on but um and i'd also like to do not only community projects that are to do with my work, which is more in fiction, literature. But I would also like to do things that actually materially benefit the community. So I don't necessarily know what that looks like, but it's essentially, it's kind of what Kahindi Andrews says when he's like, I'm just going to take your funding. Extract, <laughs> and extraction. Do, and do community projects and, and do things that, that I want to do to... Yeah, to make to make things better for people. So I don't necessarily see academia as just okay. I'm just going to sit there and publish things and be in the ivory tower. Um, I want to use it for, for something good. So we'll see. And I also, um, and this is actually why me and Chantal 
ended up like talking, meeting on Twitter, um, is because of some of the work that I'm doing to do with talking about the black experience of PhDs mm. and academia more broadly. Um, I don't think that there's much out there and we kind of all have to make it all up as we go along. But so I've, I've got, there's a bit of a, a group of us that, all, that are all going to do a book. It's going to be an editor collection. It's going to be about experiences of academia from a black perspective. It's also going to be kind of like a guide for how to navigate it. Wow. And it's going to be interdisciplinary, um, people of different levels. So we've got like a master's student. We've also got early career researchers that are kind of in, in their career. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, and coming from lots of different disciplines. So we're hoping that that will be something that will encourage more black people to go into academia or not even necessarily to go, go down the academic route, but to at least feel supported and know that... It's an option for yeah, them. Yeah, That's the thing, isn't it? Like, just having all that information and knowing it's... Yeah. ...possible. It, I think, that's what I said, I think, those, I think that's amazing. Like, I think, in my experience, when I, before, I said on the podcast before, any time I've gone into those spaces, you're usually the first one of your family, right? Mm. And you go there and you're thinking... Why is it not like it's on TV? Because <laughs> like, this is just mad. People, I don't really, I'm not having fun, I'm not getting drunk. In fact, I don't even want to talk to these people. And on top of that, the professors are not even speaking to me because man's shook. Man's shook because I walk into a room. <laughs> it still happens to this day, to this day. So I was saying to the guys, I was at a scholarship dinner. But you walk into a room, and because, because you're, there's about four of us, isn't it? So man's, man's like a unicorn in that room. Magical dust. Walk around, people want to come speak to me because man's got that, that, that flavour, innit? Yeah, I yeah, spice yeah. up that thing. But that's what I'm saying. So until we kind of... <laughs> Amber, I think of black feminism as like a liberating theory of putting black women central to our analysis and how that analysis can be the, for the betterment, the betterment of everyone. Yeah, I think that's a good way of saying it. That's a, that's a, that's, yeah, I, that's, yeah, I think that's really good. It's about thinking it's radically. Thinking radically, but it's a, it's, a, it's a different analytical tool to look at systems of, like, systems of oppression and systems of power, right? The man's got it. So black feminism is a politics that is an analytical tool that allows you to look at different systems of power and how they particularly affect black women, so it places black women at the centre. Um, but it's also, it's not necessarily just about black women, it's about uh, how we can imagine a different society that is less oppressive for all people, especially those racialized as black. Boom! Thank you so much for joining us, Amber. Thanks, Amber. Guys, Thank we've Thank made it through another season. Boop, boop. High five. High five. <laughs> High five. Did you enjoy it? We hope you did. We'll see you next season. See you next season. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Surviving Society. Please support the podcast by rating, following and subscribing on your preferred podcast platform. And please consider supporting the production of the podcast by joining our Patreon community. 